podcast has bad words. <laughs> this is the Minimalist Private Podcast. Today we're going to talk about tranquility. We're going to answer a bunch of surprise questions as well. But first, Ryan, I thought we would we'd start with some more about less. Actually, before we even get into that, because sometimes I want to read, we were having a conversation off mic. Uh, Jordan was talking about how recent the recent revelation from this book here, the the way to love, which I talked about on a, a several previous podcasts before, but the one in particular about the the, f- the two different types of feelings that arise within us. Anthony DeMello says, "Recall the kind of feeling you have when someone praises you, when you are approved, accepted, applauded, and contrast that with the kind of feeling that arises within you when you look at a sunset or the sunrise or nature in general. And we were talking, you, you were saying, oh yeah, because Jordan's been doing a lot of rock climbing recently, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. he said, I've really noticed it's different because I'm not doing it for a trophy or an outcome. It is the state of no mind or you could call it meditativeness or flow state or whatever whatever label we want to slap onto it that's not uh, important but what is important is the essence the the experience of of immersion there mm-hmm. and contrasting that with the well you just won second place in the bouldering competition you, that might feel good in the moment in terms of pleasure it'll feel pleasurable in the moment but it's not the same deep fulfillment the, the satisfaction you get from the moment. And then, Ryan, you were saying something about you feel the same thing with surfing, whether it's looking at the waves and the sunset or just the act of immersing yourself in surfing. Mm. You really, you, you, you're there in the moment. Mm-hmm. And that would, of course, be different. Not that there's anything wrong with getting a surfing trophy. It gave you a giant, giant trophy, but that's not what it's about. I watched the Tiger Woods documentary and at the end of the, every, every time he won one of these masters competitions, they hand him this giant, absurd, stupid trophy. And you see him hold it up, but you can see that's not the state of uh, meditativeness. Mm. That's not where his peace or tranquility comes from. In fact, I, I would argue that giant trophy is disrupting his peace mm. in, in many respects. I could see that. It's interesting because I'm looking, I was looking for a way to process gratitude when you and Jordan were having that conversation because and it's different um winning a trophy like that feeling I can relate with of like oh wow like I won I mean that's that's the feeling that I relate with there and there is this this comp you know this competitive side that you know when I win like yeah that is a you know that's the ego stroking itself like Mm -hmm. ah you did a good job but when it comes and, to and just to be clear, the ego is not bad. Water is not bad. It just is. It it, it is wet. Mm-hmm. And it can hydrate you or it can drown you. Exactly. Um. Yeah. So, it may, but it, the whole gratitude thing made me think of like when I feel the most. One of the times where I feel the most uncomfortable or very uncomfortable is when we are in the hug line. And someone will come up to me and be like, you have no idea how great you are. You have no idea how much of an influence you are on my life. You don't even know it, but you saved my life. And Mm -hmm. they're pouring out all this gratitude. Mm -hmm. And it's uncomfortable because, well, I don't know why. It's like, 
it feels like I don't deserve it. Okay. It feels like they're putting me on a pedestal when I don't want to be on a pedestal. Right. But like I push against, you know, and I had, um, we have a mutual friend, John Sweeney. Mm -hmm. He was telling me, thank you. I've read your stuff and you're, you know, and, uh, listen to your podcast and like, you know, you've really helped me and my family, blah, blah. And I'm like, he's like, thank you so much. I'm like, yeah. He's like, no, 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 no. He's like, that's what we do when we, we, we when we get gratitude. We just look at someone and we're like, yeah, okay, well, thanks. Mm-hmm. And he's like, it's much deeper than that. And intellectually, I kind of understand what he's saying, but emotionally, like, it's it's still very uncomfortable for me to hear people give us gratitude. Even if I see it on, like, Twitter, it's I don't know how to react to it. It sounds to me like you feel obligated to give gratitude in that scenario. Well, I want them to know how much I, yeah. Yeah, I want them to know how much I appreciate the gratitude that they're giving me, but in the same token, again, like I, I, I don't like being put on a pedestal. I don't yeah. like being the person who's looked up to. Yeah. yeah. So, so it, yeah. The, there's, there's ego in that as well, right? The ego in, sure. I want you to know how I feel about this. Well, um, I want them to feel heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I guess the worst, like the, the, the worst thing that could possibly happen from someone giving me gratitude is them feeling like I could care less about their gratitude. Right. Now so, you, you say you push, you, in a way you sort of push away that gratitude. It's a, maybe your first instinct. I just don't know how to process it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so because you don't know how to process it, there's a keeping it at arm's length. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually look at it as though the, the bad stuff, I'm using bad in quotes here, right? Mm-hmm. The negative, also you have to put that in quotes. Sure. Uh, criticism, whatever you want to call it, has an effect only if the positivity, the good stuff, the the praise, the applause has an effect. Mm. And so there's part of what you're doing has is saying, hey, I'm divorcing myself from needing the the positive stuff. Mm. But in doing so, it also sounds like you're pushing it away, which denouncing something means you're forever connected to it. Mm. And so maybe I, I, what I see from what, what what you're going through here is when the hug line is a perfect example for this. We do a hug line and when we do a live events, obviously haven't had a hug line in a few years. Um, But we do these hug lines and so I would just say contrast that feeling you get when you're hugging someone mm. versus the praise that they then heap upon you. Mm. That hug is what? It's truth. Mm-hmm. It's sincere. It's not to say the praise isn't sincere. Mm. But as soon as we, uh, the only thing the praise can do is, appro- uh, is, is sort of approximate the truth. And by the way, it's, they're putting you on the pedestal, but really what's happening is that they're saying there was a deep resonance between your words, mm-hmm. the words that, by the way, the words aren't even your fault either, right? Sure. That they happen to flow through you because of all the existing circumstance. Mm-hmm. And, and so they're simply saying they resonated with the words or with the, the conversation or, or with whatever that you thing is that you created, the book, the film, whatever mm. they re- really resonated with with that and 
it's two different experiences. One is the, uh, it's a type of applause in a way, mm-hmm. but the hug isn't that. The hug is the essence. The mm. hug is humanity. Mm. The, the hug is, is, is the truth. And by the way, that hug didn't require that you make that film that changed their life. You yeah. could have gotten the same exact hug had you never made that film. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting too because when I think about hugging, like the <laughs> the hugs are disrupted when I'll, in my head I'm like, uh, I don't want to hug this person too long. I don't want them to think I'm a weirdo. Mm, <laughs> like yeah, ego. Yeah, exactly. It's really it's really funny, man. Right. And so when I say ego isn't bad, what I'm saying there is it will often it just disrupts the present moment and it disrupts the uh it disturbs the peace yeah it disturbs the peace the ego disturbs the peace and mm. and that's not wrong either and let me tell you why it, it's easy to illustrate that most people aren't seeking peace most people aren't seeking tranquility we might say that we are mm. just like most of us aren't seeking freedom mm. You, and that's okay. It's not wrong to not seek freedom. It's just understanding what we're seeking uh, helps us live in align with uh, an alignment with that whichever we are seek, seeking. Mm-hmm. Because if we truly understand or realize what we are seeking, then any of the the sort of the path to get there automatically sort of forms. Mm. Now, Ryan, you and I were doing, before I get into the more about less segment here and read something else from The Way to Love, I wanted to talk to you about, we were doing a Ask the Minimalist Anything session for our two tiers, the the, the VIPs and the, the true fans on Patreon, episode mm-hmm. 41 of Ask the Minimalist Anything. And on that episode, you and I had a question about the truth and someone was asking it. When you, say, when you talk about the truth, what are you talking about? And we gave attenuated answers because of the, the, the time frame that we had there. But I, I thought maybe we could talk about that because you and I gave, I think what you said were the exact opposite answers mm. when, when we were answering it. And, and so when this person asked the question, what are you talking about when you talk about the truth? Is it a subjective truth? Is it objective truth? Mm. I, I, I would say when I'm talking about truth, by the way, definitions don't go anywhere, so this isn't about a definition. In fact, here's a pithy answer for you. The truth is found in the essence, not the abstraction. Def- definitions are always abstractions. And, and so they're necessary. We need to use English language to communicate with each other in, in this context. But when I'm talking about truth, uh, I'm talking about an uncompromising truth. In fact, that's what uh, Direct Truth, that book Kapil Gupta wrote, is, mm. is about is uh, uncompromising truth and what does that mean uncompromising it means it's not affected by beliefs or opinions in fact i think beliefs and opinions have nothing to do with the truth and, and so when i'm talking about truth it's not subjective but also it's not objective in the sense that one might think mm-hmm. it is the truth about something mm. it is a truth of, it is getting to the it is getting beneath the surface mm. and uncovering the fundament 
of what we are talking about. Mm. So when I'm talking about truth, that's what I'm talking I'm not talking about facts. You and I, in a previous episode, we talked about how sometimes facts actually get in the way of the truth, right? right. It was like answers versus understanding, I think, is what you were talking about mm. on mm. that episode. Yeah. And, and you and I figured out, like, yeah, there are answers out there in terms of facts. How many states are in the United States? Like, that's a fact, mm -hmm. right? But it doesn't help me understand a, a deeper truth necessarily. Mm. It, it could. It could lead me down that path. But facts in and of themselves aren't truth. The truth is when we uncouple reality from belief and opinion. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the truth. Yeah. I think, uh, I think you had said something about, and I forget how you got there, but you said, you know, I'm never going to tell someone to live their truth. And that's where I was like, oh, like I have the exact opposite answer. Yeah. Where I would say your truth is going to be your own. And that's when I think about the truth, I think about being true to yourself. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so I would say live your truth. And yeah. So I, how did you, how did you get to you would never tell someone to live their truth or you wouldn't, you, you, that's not an, an idiom that you would say. Right. Because I don't think there are individual truths in the sense that like your truth is not my truth, et cetera. I think the truth is the truth regardless of uh, whether or not I'm here. And, and, and so I would love you to write a book on what the truth is. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, there's a chapter in our new book um, where I, I do talk about the different ways that we use the term truth. And in fact, I even in, in mm -hmm. that chapter talk about like, yeah, sometimes people mean, you know, live your truth, they'll say live your truth or whatever. That's a, a subjective sort of truth that is, that is tied to belief and opinion, mm -hmm. right? And if that's what you mean by truth, then, then I have no problem with that. But like the truth may be different from your beliefs. Yeah. If, 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 what I'm, if, if you're living your truth, but it's just, a belief that you're tethered to, then it may not be getting to the fundament, to, to mm. the truth. And, and the way that we can see that is if we uncouple our opinions about a particular matter mm. and look underneath that. Yeah. And, and hmm. there is something with... Yeah, I, I think there are fundamental truths and I think there are ways to get there. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, you know, it's it's. I don't have like a succinct answer. It's it sounds like you have a very succinct answer on what the truth is for you. Uh, for me, it's it's fun to play with, um, and I don't have a succinct answer on what the truth means to me. Um, but that's why we're having this conversation. Sure, yeah. exactly. And and I think ultimately, where I'd like to go with this in my own life is it doesn't matter what the truth means to me, right? Mm. It doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter what my opinion is. The truth is the truth regardless of my opinion. In fact, if my opinion is the exact opposite of the truth, mm. then it is just getting in the way. It's preventing me from even understanding or seeing that truth. Hmm. And uh, we were talking about shoulds earlier, right? Uh, and, and how there are no shoulds. If I were to pin that, I, I would say that every should is just a pious could. Mm. Uh, whenever we, we, we say, you should go, I mean, get on social media right now. Your podcast should be longer. Next comment. Your podcast should be shorter. Oh, 
it's a pious could. What you're saying is, yeah, your podcast could be longer mm-hmm. or your podcast could be shorter or your podcast could play more music or your podcast could play less music or your podcast cover could look different. Not that it should. Mm. Whenever we assign a should to something, we're simply saying this is my preference and I'm adding, and there's no, tr- there's no truth in, right. in any of these shoulds. It's just the forced preference or right. a pious could. Yeah. 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 Interesting. I got some more about less here, Ryan. Since we're talking about tranquility today, I want to just talk about how we got to that. Like, really, you and I talk about the benefits of living with less. We're talking about uncovering truths, and we're talking about uncovering tranquility. We talked about this in the minimal episode when when you said that tranquility is not a destination. Now, what you're saying there is like the chase of tranquility <laughs> will never make you tra- it will always accomplish the opposite right yeah if only this this and this would happen right i could finally be tranquil yeah 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 we think about that we even use the term to tranquilize someone Mm. right we even have a question about what is tranquility we'll get into that in a moment here but here is an excerpt from the way to love this chapter is called men of violence did your bookmark grow (laughs) (laughs) should declutter half of it (laughs) that should was a joke there all right so this chapter is called men of violence compare the serene and simple splendor of a rose in bloom with the tensions and restlessness of your life the rose has a gift that you lack it is perfectly content to be itself It has not been programmed from birth as you have been to be dissatisfied with itself. So it has not the slightest urge to be anything other than what it is. That is why it possesses the artless grace and absence of inner conflict that among humans is only found in little children and mystics. Isn't that so true, Ryan? When when you think about tranquility, I see it most in, we call them mystics or you could call them monks or whatever, uh, the people who sort of transcended society or children who have not yet been infected by Mm. their culture. Mm -hmm. You see a a type of tranquility in little kids that mesmerizes me. I don't know about you, but when I see the happiest little baby Mm. or even toddler or whatever, just the exploration, the wonder, the awe. Mm-hmm. It's, I know I couldn't ever find that by chasing it either. Right. Because they're not looking for tranquility. Yeah. There's no baby looking for tranquility. There's yeah. no seven-year-old looking for tranquility. Yeah. And the truth be told, there's no 39-year-olds, very few, who are actually looking to uncover tranquility Mm. in their own life. Yeah. Consider your sad condition. (laughs) You are always dissatisfied with yourself, always wanting to change yourself. So you are full of violence and self-intolerance, which only grows with every effort that you make to change yourself. So any change you achieve is always accompanied by inner conflict. And you suffer when you see others achieve what you have not and become what you are not. DeMello is so accusatory. (laughs) You see this rose? You know what the difference is between this rose and you? You're programmed. (laughs) 
Jesus. Hey, man. The, 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 I would say that the <laughs> truth is uncompromising. <laughs> I know how to love you. Don't. So I'm going to show you the way. See, that's the implicit message that you <laughs> thrust onto it. And a lot of people will thrust onto it. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's he, a language thing. Yeah. yeah. He, he's not saying that <laughs> you should change anything here. He's, no. he's simply pointing out the truth of a rose and the truth of the human condition. He's mm-hmm. saying you, he's, it's a, it's a collective, you humans. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It would be inter- if if he approached it in in the way of we, it would be so, it would just feel softer. But maybe it's meant to be a little, you know, Julian Smith like where you know he's like maybe trying to shake you and like disrupt your peace a little bit. I don't know. If he's trying. I think he's trying to illuminate a truth, and I think we would be would be insincere here because it's not his life. Yeah, but he or had to wasn't go, his life. But he had to go through all that. Right, mm-hmm. right. But in, in, in the moment of his speaking this or writing this, I assume he spoke this and they turned it into a book. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is is like the implicit you, it sounds like he's on a pedestal talking down. Look, mm. I am here. Right, and, and that's, the, that's the image that we project onto it. Well, I mean, how else? He's not, because he's not giving advice. Look at it. Huh. I, I would look at it as he is exposing the truth mm. and he's uncovering the truth that is already there mm. and he's not telling anyone that you should do something mm-hmm. the truths that he exposes are if then statements if anything so like if you want peace then mm. this is what will occur yeah it's interesting because it's like you ever heard of tone policing yes yeah it's like i'm not trying to be tone policing but maybe yeah, maybe that's maybe that is what I'm doing like, unintentionally. I think we do that all the time, actually. But anyway, right, and, and that goes back to the should thing as well. We think, well, you should approach it from a we perspective or whatever. And well, and all yeah. I'm all I'm really saying, if I were to say that, is it would be my preference. Yeah. Had you approach it differently. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it is true. It, it makes me think of that podcast I sent my friend with Naval, and. Uh, he interviewed Kapil Gupta mm-hmm. and uh, he like couldn't get through it because mm-hmm. it was all these judgments on the tone mm-hmm. of these two men. Sure. And I was like, I to- I like, I really tried to set you up with the expectation. Like it's a very difficult podcast to listen to uh-huh. because we want to project all of our own judgments on it. it all this is difficult. And, yeah. and, and by the way, so whether it's Kapil or, or Anthony DeMello mm-hmm. or any other mystic, um, the, you're absolutely right. The, these are because if we're not ready for something like this, because for me, this found me right at the right time, mm-hmm. a hospitalization, et cetera. And it found me at the right time where it didn't feel judgmental at all. It felt entirely inspirational mm. in a way that I, it, he was, he was not judging me. I didn't feel judged. I felt that he was speaking the truth mm. about how I was wasting my life. Mm. Mm. And I didn't, it felt loving in a way Mm. because it felt, it would feel unloving to me Mm. if he placated me and said, ah, it'll be okay. Mm. No, it's not okay. Mm. And actually we'll just go on here. Would you you be tormented by jealousy and envy if like the rose, you were content to be what you are and never aspired to what you are not, but you are driven, are you not, to be like someone else who has more knowledge, looks better, 
uh, better looks, more popularity or success than you. That's so true. Like, there's nothing I can really do about the way that I look or the way I was born, right? Mm. And yet we remain displeased even when we're at our best, so to speak. You and I did a, a podcast interview with uh, Max Lugavair recently on his podcast. Mm-hmm. He's been a former podcast guest on The Minimalists. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did an episode with him called Genius Life, and that's, by the way, that's the name of his podcast. Anyway, we were at his house, and it's like, this guy is so freaking handsome. Like, man, how much easier would my life be if I was as handsome as Max Lugavere? He's got a handsome privilege. Yeah. <laughs> and and like it's, he rolled out of bed and just did the podcast, and it was <laughs> like his hair is all disheveled, but it looks even better. And I'm really? like, what? Uh, it, but it, it's exactly what he's saying here. It's torment, right? Mm. It, it's a, it's a, it's a low-grade envy in a way. Mm-hmm. Um that you know, I would be more, I'd be better, I'd be good if, right? And, and he's exposing that truth. Mm-hmm. You want to become more virtuous, more loving, more meditative. You want to find God to come closer to your ideals. Think of the sad history of your efforts as at self-improvement that either ended in disaster or succeeded only at the cost of struggle and pain. Now, Suppose you detest. Su- now, suppose you desisted from all efforts to change yourself and from all self dissatisfaction. Would you then be doomed to go to sleep, having passively accepted everything in you and around you? There is another way besides laborious self pushing on the one hand and stagnant acceptance on the other hand. It is the way of self understanding. This is far from easy because to understand what you are requires complete freedom from all desire to change what you are into something else. So that it's almost like it's become part of our culture. We're told to change, to self-improve, right? But I think most self-improvement is actually just re- is removing of the programming that is instilled either self-programming or cultural programming, religious programming, whatever. So it's not really self-improving as much as it is decluttering, decluttering the programming. Yeah. Yeah. It's a type of sort of existential decluttering, right? Mm -hmm. You will see, you will see this if you compare the attitude of a scientist who studies the habits of ants without the slightest desire to change them with the attitude of a dog trainer who studies the habits of a dog with a view to making it learn something. If what you attempt is not to change yourself, but to observe yourself, to study every one of your reactions to people and things without judgment or condemnation or desire to reform yourself, your observation will be non-selective, comprehensive, never fixed on rigid conclusions, always open and fresh from the moment from moment to moment when you notice then you will notice a marvelous thing happening within you you will be flooded with the light of awareness you will become transparent and transformed so that's the fascinating part about this it's not about he's saying it's not about the change the trying to change 
It is about the realization or what I would call understanding. Mm. Uh, and once we get that realization, here's the weird thing. It's like um, quantum physics. When you observe something, it automatically changes. Mm. When you understand something, it changes as well. Mm. Instead of trying to do something, if I understand something, the doing simply appears mm. because you can't not do it. If you truly understand, it's like eating. You know that you have to eat today, mm -hmm. right? You understand that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You don't need the steps on how to eat. Sure. Because it simply happens. Mm. In fact, it happens too much for most of us. We overeat because we don't have another understanding, right? We don't understand the truth about you know, nourishment and, and, and feeding ourselves. Mm. And so we overdo it in many ways. And so what I'm reading here is that once we understand something, I understand I have to eat, I need to eat, then I can't not do it. Mm. And the doing simply appears. We'll move on here. Yeah. Will change occur then? Oh, yes. In you and in your surroundings. But it will not be brought about by your cunning, restless ego that is forever competing, comparing, coercing, sermonizing, manipulating in its intolerance and its ambitions, thereby creating tension and conflict and resistance between you and nature. An exhausting, self-defeating process like driving with your brakes on. No, the transforming light of awareness brushes aside your scheming, self-seeking ego to give nature full reign to bring about the kind of change that she produces in the rose. Artless, graceful, unself-conscious, wholesome, untainted by inner conflict. Since all change is violence, she will be violent. But the marvelous quality of nature violence unlike ego violence, is that it does not spring from intolerance and self-hatred. Hmm. There's something about <clears throat> this idea of the rose that uh, I feel like maybe he's missing a little bit in the sense that a rose has evolved. A rose doesn't just, it didn't just become a rose. Mm -hmm. It has taken time to, to have the beauty, to have the thorns, to withstand the weather. Mm -hmm. In fact, if the weather's too rough, a rose won't survive. Right. So it's almost like the beauty of the rose, it happens because, yeah, it's what needs it's what needs to happen. It's what needed to happen over however many years it took to evolve a rose. From nature. Right. So the, the idea of uh, the idea of just becoming mindful or mindless. I I, forget, I don't know where we're landing on that term. Sure. It, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter, but the, you know, the idea of just being um there are still external forces that shape us. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's something about or maybe or maybe that is what he's saying. Yeah, I don't know. Right. There the, you're yeah. right. And, and so there are external forces as you said that shape the rose if it freezes it will kill it right yeah uh, the rose doesn't hope that it doesn't get become freezing tonight right well it's interesting though because but plants do they w they do still have a mechanism of survival yes 
And when you stress out a plant, it does things that it normally wouldn't do. Right. Yeah. Right. But it, it does so without hope. It, it does mm. so without. Yeah. Right. And, and so I think what he's saying here is that humans have also evolved like the rose has. Yeah. Humans have evolved to. To. Well, in a society that is constantly disrupting mm-hmm. their tranquility, their peace, their their understanding. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, the rose has an advantage. What's that? It doesn't have a frontal lobe. right yeah 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 Mm. and so so there are a lot of (laughs) there are a lot of humans Mm -hmm. who are also um not reacting you know he calls ego violent right Mm. which is it springs from intolerance and self-hatred yeah so intolerance for other people there are some people who tolerate other people. You and I have been talking about tolerance for many years now. Yeah. And and that intolerance certainly leads to misery. Mm. The problem is I was just less intolerant before, mm-hmm. but I still didn't tolerate everyone. I still wanted my ego wanted to change things about people, mm. show them the way. Here's my advice. And, and, that really showed a intolerance on my part. Mm. So there is no anger in the rainstorm that carries everything before it or the fish that devour their young in obedience to ecological laws we know not or body cells when they destroy each other in the interest of a higher good. When nature destroys, it is not from ambition or greed or self-aggrandizement, but in obedience to mysterious laws that seek the good of the whole universe above the survival and well-being of the parts. It is this kind of violence that arises within mystics who storm against ideas and structures that have become entrenched in their societies and cultures when awareness awakens them to evils their, their contemporaries are blind to. It is this violence that causes the rose to come into being in the face of forces hostile to it. And it is this violence that the rose, like the mystic, will sweetly succumb after it has opened its petals to the sun and lives in fragile feeling loveliness, lives in fragile feeling loveliness, quite unconcerned to add a single extra minute to its allotted span of life. And so it lives in blessedness and beauty like the birds of the air and the flowers of the field with no trace of restlessness and dissatisfaction, the jealousy and anxiety and competitiveness that characterize the world of human beings who seek to control and coerce rather than be content to flower into awareness, leaving all change to the almighty force of nature. Hmm. So when I think about tranquility, Mm -hmm, Ryan, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in fact, Stephen's first question here is, how do you define tranquility? Present, calm, content, relaxed. Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, It depends on what you mean by tranquility. As I alluded to earlier, the truth is found in the essence, not the abstraction. So these definitions 
They're only approximations. Mm. We have only the English language and it's 220,000 words to work with. It can only summarize the truth in a way. Mm. So how do you define tranquility? What ideas do you have for how to achieve what I view as a temporary state of being and why that is important? So is tranquility temporary? Yes, but isn't yeah. everything. Yeah. I, it's interesting, though. I look at tranquility as like peace being a synonym for it. Yes, I do too. But tranquility comes with a different sense of, because peace, it feels no emotion, mm. I feel like. But tranquility has like, it's not a high dose, but it's like a little tinge. Tinge? Is that a, a pro, is that an no, actual tinge. measurement? <laughs> it's a new measurement. <laughs> Uh, a tinge of uh, of happiness, yeah, which goes back to the point of tranquility is absolutely ephemeral, right? And, yeah. and, and it all is though, yeah. right? So, so peace is ephemeral. Yep. Tranquility is what else do you say? Present. Mm-hmm. I mean, the present moment is ephemeral and simultaneously eternal. Mm. And so, uh, we we have we think of time in a linear fashion and it makes sense that we do think of it that way, but every moment is eternal mm-hmm. and it's hard for us to, you know, in our 4d world, right? Where we have three dimensions plus time. It's hard for us to even conceive what that is. Mm-hmm. We understand there are other dimensions. But we understand that only intellectually. Mm-hmm. If you were a 2d creature, you wouldn't understand the third dimension either. Right. Right. There's a whole Carl Sagan talk about this. And in fact, if you could find that, Sean, it might be worth putting in the show notes. Carl Sagan talking. Uh, he, he gives like a, a whole disp- this video display of like why we can't really understand the additional dimensions that are out there. It's like a 2D stick figure trying to understand what th- a third dimension is. Yeah. And he shows how absurd that, that really is. Yeah. It's funny. Anything I've ever seen on a, like a fourth dimension... It it is absurd, mm-hmm. yeah. It's yeah. It's it's pretty absurd. Anyway, because we lack that understanding. Yeah. Getting back to tranquility, mm-hmm. how do you define tranquility? I don't think the definitions are going to be important for you here because tranquility. We could talk about what tranquility isn't, and that w- that can help us approximate it. Yeah. Tranquility isn't conflict, right? We we've determined that. Mm-hmm. I think you and I agree that yeah that conflict. Tranquility isn't suffering. Mm-hmm. Tranquility is not disruption. Mm-hmm. Tranquility is not what? It's and not elation. It's not. Ooh, good point. Depression. It's yeah. It's not um, any extreme emotion. It's not pleasure, right? Either. And it's I think too often we confuse pleasure. Like ah, oh, I feel. In fact, we we have drugs called tranquilizers. Mm-hmm. If you want real tranquility. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and we mistake tranquilizing ourselves for tranquility. We yeah. tranquilize ourselves every day with pleasure. Yeah, I think uh, to, to put a definition, I don't know. Tr- tranquility to me means not having any extreme emotions. Hmm. So that's why I said, you know, peace, you know, maybe is a synonym with tranquility. But I think like Stephen's asking this, because when we have these conversations, it's hard to 
um, keep up. It's hard for me to keep up first off. Um, but it's hard to keep up with the conversation when you you don't know what they're talking. I mean, if you're, if we're talking about the word tranquility, mm-hmm. Stephen has a very valid question of like, well, what do you mean when you say tranquility? Right. So that's why he's looking for, cause he wants to follow along with the conversation. Yeah, And, and so the, like I said, the best way I can approximate it is to say what it isn't. Is to sort of do the chalk outline around it. Right yeah. now. I like what you said there about, about being. Uh, what did you say about the emotion thing? It's absent of extreme emotion, I, I, and I, that's what tranquilizers do. Right. So I think that's what tranquilizers do. I think tranquility is absence of the effect of emotion. Yeah. And, and, and totally. So the emotions can still you can experience anger. Mm. It's just like anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. You can either say I'm an anxious person, or anxiousness has arisen within me i am mm. it's not that i am anxious it's that i'm feeling anxious in the moment mm. and and if i can divorce myself from that not in a prescriptive sort of way mm-hmm. but by understanding that anxiety will arrive even in moments of tranquility anxiety will arrive mm. the tranquil person is not affected by that mm. it's just like um a river, right? Uh, when when the river keeps going, there'll be parts that the the river isn't worried about, you know, where it's headed. Mm-hmm. Am I headed to the ocean or the lake or Again, whatever? Again, it does not have a frontal lobe. Right, right. <laughs> but, that, that, but we're talking about the state of no mind, right? Right, exactly. Meditativeness. Yes. Is. Ooh, yeah. You it, are. Yeah, you're getting somewhere with this. This is good. And, and, and so, <clears throat> the the existence in and of itself. You know, we are constantly getting in the way of our own existence. Yeah, it's really it makes me think about um, Sam Harris and the Waking Up app that we're doing, mm-hmm. Mariah and I, and how he is just constantly every single meditation. He's he's encouraging encouraging you to do two things, and the one is I've talked about uh, on one of our podcasts before about starting again, mm-hmm. and um, I think if we can start again when we have these very sharp emotions, I think that can help us be more uh, tranquil. Um, But then the other thing he talks about is basically accepting all of the disruptions that happen in our mind, Mm -hmm. but taking a step back and observing the emotions, which can lead us and help us to get closer to being like a river or to being like a rose. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. And the beauty behind that is if you can like master that, which I don't think that's a goal. That's not my goal, but I could see where becoming, you know, a master at that is you could almost have this out of body experience where you're kind of just observing what's happening rather than allowing it to control you essentially. People often describe the out of body experience. Jordan, I don't know if you've experienced that yet with the rock climbing you've been doing, but it's, uh, I, I certainly experienced it with writing. I'm sure you've experienced it with snowboarding. Mm-hmm. That's another way to describe the meditativeness or the flow state or the, the no mind mm-hmm. is the uh, out-of-body experience because it, it doesn't require the, the cerebration mm. that um, the turmoil requires, right? And so when I talk about being less affected or unaffected by the emotions that arise, it doesn't mean that they don't arise. They will still arise, maybe with different frequency once we better understand them. But yes, anxiety will still 
arise. But yeah. that doesn't mean I am anxious. Mm-hmm. It means I feel anxious. Mm. And I can choose not to cling to it. I'm really good at clinging to anxiety. <laughs> it doesn't serve me very well. I'm just very good at clinging in general. You have a clinging contest? <laughs> <laughs> Ready, go. <laughs> All right, we got a question here from uh, Professor Fire. Professor Fire wants to know tranquility. How do you get back there after an upset? I love David Allen's concept of mind like water. It reacts in proportion to the rock thrown into it, but then quickly returns to a steady, tranquil state of normalcy. So, so yeah. How do you get back to tranquility after an upset? Man, that's a... Uh, Okay, you, you, uh, there's a thought developing, but I can't articulate it yet. You go first. Okay, cool. Okay. I, well, I'm thinking about something that Kapil Gupta wrote again here about uh, another word I would use for upset is setback, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so the, he has this idea of, of setbacks. Um, you know, any endeavor, any pursuit, any journey, any climb, there is a, a, a term be, oh, I just I experienced a setback, mm-hmm. even with, with the health stuff. I experienced a setback, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, he says that the creation of the concept of setback then gives birth to the idea of get back on your horse. It gives birth to if you fall, you must get back up and have faith and persevere. And There are entire books that have been wor- written on the word grit, so on and so forth. Mm. What's really unfolding here? Um, what society does is that it notices an incident. Then it manufactures a concept out of the incident. Then creates aphorisms and prescriptions to cope with the concept. Then the expert and the practitioner are born. They begin to, quote, teach the concept, right? Mm -hmm. (sighs) And it all started with an interpretation of an incident. What is the truth? The interpretation of the incident is untruth right and Mm. so Hmm. upset is untruth setback is untruth Mm. oh yeah so so to get back to tranquility what i'm hearing you say is getting back to the truth right so Mm. the river example there might be a switchback that's not a setback right it's sometimes the the, the river does flow backward for a moment or the other direction for a moment, right? The, mm-hmm. It snakes around and heads north before it goes south again. We don't look at that as a setback. We look at it as part of nature. Life is not linear. Mm. And unfortunately, the brain, that prefrontal cortex you're talking about here, mm-hmm. organizes everything in a linear fashion. Even when, when you and I write a book, everything that remains is structured in a linear way. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense because our lives the time we perceive as linear. Mm-hmm. And so we tell stories linear. But you know, just as well as I know, that life doesn't happen in a linear way. Ten things are happening at once, and then nothing is happening, and then three things are happening, and I forget what happened yesterday, but so many things might happen tomorrow, and three weeks ago, you wouldn't believe what happened, and all of a sudden, we're bouncing all over the place. It's like we're just constantly trying to make order of disorder. Yes, is really yeah. Bingo, bingo. So as he says, what is the truth? If we if we we say something is a setback, we're pres- we're actually approaching something from a position of of untruth, and we p- approach something from the position of untruth, from falsehood, mm-hmm. 
everything that happens from there is untruth because mm-hmm. we're already looking at the thing from a position of untruth, mm-hmm. a, an a untruthful lens, right? Hmm. And so um, what he says here is every practitioner is untruth because they're all offering offspring of a false interpretation. Uh, it's the thing I wrote about when I, I wrote that advice epidemic essay, which I thought was going to just piss everyone off. Hmm. But my God, it the, the reception on that was like, oh, I was thirsty for this type of truth. I've never even heard something like this before. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, yeah, it, I'm sure it pissed some people off. That's okay. None of my business, right? Um, We're not in the business of pissing people off. What's the opposite of pissing? <laughs> <laughs> pooping. Yeah, or pooping people off. <laughs> <laughs> we are so, in the business <laughs> of uh, being truthful. <laughs> So here we go. Yeah. Uh, what is the truth? <laughs> Setbacks do not exist. The only thing that exists is the hope that lives in the mind of the journeyman. Mm. All that does not satisfy the hope is deemed a setback. In examining the hope, it is too a concoction. It is it too is a concoction. It too is a manufacturing. It too is a concept. Mm. And this is great. What, so what he's basically saying is hope is is. In- is a big problem and so the set the upset here has only to do with the hope and so what we Mm. actually need to do the truth is we need to examine hope and sean and i we even had a a a quick text conversation about this morning like i had to i i still keep picking up hope and i i need to continue to set it down because hope is just a fancy way of saying expectation i really hope you can let go of your hope josh (laughs) Right, but isn't it isn't it a fancy way to say? Because really, what we're saying is, it is. It would be nice if this would happen. In fact, it would be so nice that I formed a hope, which means my satisfaction or happiness or pleasure or or fulfillment are tethered now to this hope. Is there a way to like? Because when I think of hope, what happens is you have something that's that is. upsetting you or I'll talk it in my perspective when I think of hope there's something that's upsetting me mm-hmm. then I look at the future mm-hmm. uh, you know the the near future the or the you know the the future future mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I start to imagine what life would be like if I wasn't upset and then I start to live in that perceived future mm. and that is what that is where the hope arises. Yeah. Is when I'm living in that. Um, it's like I used to buy lottery tickets a lot, mm-hmm. um, which is nothing wrong with buying lottery tickets. No, the, it's not the problem. Really yeah. The problem is, is that when you start living in this fantasy world of winning the lottery. That's all a lottery ticket is, though, right? Uh, a lottery ticket is always the fantasy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To an ex- Yeah. Because it's not an investment. And, and no, it's definitely not. But but there yeah but there is. I, I just don't want people to feel bad listening to this who buy lottery tickets. Like if you want to buy a lottery ticket, great, go buy it. There's nothing good or bad about it. the The problem is that when you it takes you out when imagining yourself winning the lottery and hoping to win the lottery when it takes you out of the present moment, that is where hope is disruptive. So what I'm trying to get at is is there is there a way to be in the present moment but be open to winning the lottery? but not living in that feeling of winning a lot. Does that make sense? Yeah, l- letting go of the attachment to winning the lottery, for sure. Right, yeah. Right, I mean, I think we're all open to winning the lottery. 
Yeah. And the the question is, once I become attached to it, mm. that's where the misery comes so, from. So is there a word for hope without attachment? Because hope is attachment. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, all hope is attachment. Yeah. And all attachment leads to suffering. Mm-hmm. So hope is suffering. Sure. There's no question about it. And look, I know this is like a radical way, way to think here. And I still use that term to mean like that would be nice. But I will say, I oh, I hope that works out for you. Mm. But I, what I'm really saying is sounds like that's what you want. Yeah. Uh, and so when I say... Oh, I hope something now I'm, I'm divorcing myself from that because I do think there are implications in my continuing to hope for a future that does not yet exist. Well, let's think about like someone who is imprisoned for a crime they didn't commit. Yes. So they're in the prison cell. Mm-hmm. Let's say it's so bad that like they're confined to solitary confinement. Okay. Sure. But they didn't commit the crime, but they're being held accountable for it. Okay. So it's like, it would be... <sighs> A piece of me wants to give that prisoner hope that one day, one day they're going to be proven innocent and they're going to get out of that cell, okay? But I think the deeper truth is that, yes, be open to getting out of that cell, but Mm -hmm. what's more advantageous? Being in the prison cell, being angry that you were falsely committed, but holding on to hope that maybe one day you'll be acquitted, Mm -hmm. or is the, the, because I'm trying to put myself in in, in that person's shoes, I would rather be peaceful with what I in the cell by myself than live on that hope. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes perfect sense. And I think it's easier to live on the hope. So let me just throw that in there. I think here's my answer for you. Yeah, hope is the real prison. Mm, Yeah, and And yeah, it's interesting because the hope is easier to let to to imagine myself somewhere else would be the easier thing to do. The harder thing to do, but I think the more meaningful thing to do is to get yourself out of that mental prison and accept the literal prison cell you're in. Well, the mental prison's way worse than the prison cell that you're in. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, the the prison cell mm-hmm. is imprisoning, but the real it's just like it's like when we have external conflict, mm-hmm. it's really still internal conflict. Like if you and I really had it out you were yelling at me you piece of crap i can't believe you i don't like you anymore whatever mm-hmm. right like that that's are you reading my diary <laughs> <laughs> while well, i i know that that's not what i desire obviously right i know that also the real conflict that would arise from that would be everything that i start telling myself about what you're saying oh yeah yeah and and so i'm creating my own prison of hope mm-hmm. whenever i hope for something and and you and i talked about this a few weeks ago with my health stuff and i'm not it's not that i hope to get better any anymore right mm-hmm. am i open to that for sure but what I am doing, what I desire, is to have a deeper understanding of the problem. And, and I don't have a complete understanding of the problem yet. Yeah. And, and once I have an understanding of the problem, then all of a sudden the hope is unnecessary anyway. 
Well, it's almost like you're learning how to live with the problem while taking action and doing what you can and being open to the problem being resolved. Right, but it's not about taking action so much as it is about uh, about the action arises from the understanding. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying there? Because I, mean, I, I think what happened before is I was constantly trying to fix things and action was arising without an understanding of the problem. Mm-hmm. Well, of course we can't fix things. Is a river ever fixed? Mm. No, it's mm-hmm. always changing. A- and just as our lives are always changing. Mm. And so how the hell does this relate to minimalism? You might be asking. Well, this is all clutter. I bought a bunch of things in my 20s mm. because I hoped they would make me happy. Yeah. A sustained sort of happiness. Or maybe even not, maybe if I didn't have a delusion that it'd make me happy forever, maybe they made me happy for a year. Mm. Right? Right. A- a- and so there was all this hope tied up in what? Materialism. Mm-hmm. And from there, the, the hope turned into, well, I hope I get a promotion because I'll be successful. Mm. I hope I am successful because then other people will like me. Mm. I hope other people will like me because then I will feel fulfilled. Mm. I hope I am fulfilled because I, wait, do I need all those things to be fulfilled? Mm. (gasps) Or is it the nature versus the applause? Mm. Uh, The thing that we started this whole conversation with, right? And, and, oh, no, I don't need hope. When you think about, there is no, we're the only animals that have hope. Mm. And hope sounds positive, right? It's, in fact, in our culture, it is a positive word. There have been politicians who have been elected on this word alone. Mm. Nothing wrong with the word. It's not a bad word, but it is tethered to expectation. Mm. And that tether is an attachment. Yeah. And if you want internal conflict, then just hope for the best. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, I don't know why, but I feel like I need to say this for the people listening. Um, I don't feel qualified to talk about any of this, but it is a lot of fun to talk about. Right, but that's why we're having this conversation. Yeah. If we if we had the credentials to talk about it, I think we'd be less qualified to talk about it in mm. a way because mm. w- what are we doing right now? We're exploring hope. Mm. We're, yeah. under, we're, 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 we're seekers. Right. It, Cause you think, yeah, actually that's great that you point that out. Cause I still, ha- there are hopes that I have that, um, I, maybe I'm not ready to let go of the attachment, but mm-hmm. there are, there are certain things like I hope that you do get better. I hope that we are able to, as as a as a country, as a as a community, to have less fear and anger in our lives. I, I hope that uh, you know Mariah, you know, gets you know she has some things that she's working on. I hope that she gets those things. So it's like there are hopes that I still have. We're not we're not talking about how we have we have finally or at least I'm not trying to talk about how I have finally come to this place of I no longer have hope. Right. The, I guess, and we talked about this a few podcasts ago about how 
you know, I look at hope right now and I'm not saying this is the right perspective on it, but it's a tool. And the question is, is what am I, that attachment that I have, mm-hmm. wh- is it, is it harming me or is it, uh, is it something that is inspiring me? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, R- regardless though, I, I do, even the hopes that, I, you know, have these, I have these hopes that are very selfless and, um, whatever there still is there's still attachment to it yes. and if you all of a sudden die tomorrow uh-huh. all that hope is gone and then th- there's there's a pain that's going to be involved with that yes yeah and so, that pain involves attachment as well but uh, yeah it's interesting because i'm willing i'm willing to risk it mm-hmm. for those hopes you know yeah it's a gamble i know well i, I would say this that hope is always tethered to misery mm. and sure and and sure. so um, and, and but it's funny though, even saying that though, like I'm not inclined to, to just sit here and give up hope on all the hopes that I have. I'm not inclined to be like, I'm going to learn how to give up on all these hopes. Oh, I don't think you should give up on your hopes. I'm not telling yeah. you to. Oh, right. In yeah. fact, if anyone's listening to this and, and, and what you're hearing is not what I'm saying. But if what you're hearing is, oh, Josh and Ryan or Josh is, is saying they're hopeless. Hope is bad. <laughs> yeah. In fact, <laughs> What I'm saying is that detaching from hope doesn't make you hopeless, mm. and that's that. That's what we we think of. Like, oh, I don't want to be hopeless. That's a different thing. Hopeless in in our culture means one who is not able to proceed. Mm. Uh, hope means that we are we are tethered to a a preferable outcome, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's that preferable outcome that induces misery or, or even if you take the misery out of it for a moment again mm. misery isn't good or bad either have you ever been to the gym yeah. it's miserable sometimes yeah. it's not and so like uh, we often choose misery in fact most of the time we choose misery mm-hmm. what i'm saying is that if you're seeking peace hope is not the path tweet that podcast sean boom Jay has a question for us. Can tranquility become just another obligation, a way one is supposed to be? Yes. Yeah, in fact, (laughs) that's the, as Ryan so eloquently said, (laughs) tranquility is not a destination. Mm -hmm. And so when it becomes the destination, then you hope you become tranquil. (laughs) And you are now obligated or at least your your well-being yeah. is is tethered to that outcome of tranquility. Mm. That's not what we're talking about. We it's like um a, a I'm trying to think of a an apt analogy here, but like it's it, think of anything in nature. The 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 sky is the sky mm-hmm. regardless of what I believe about it, regardless of what I hope about it. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless of what I want to achieve, there is no achievement there. The sky is the sky. Tranquility is tranquility. Whether you experience it or not is uh, is a totally different thing. Yeah. Coatsy has a question for us. How do I remain intentional regarding the people in my life to maintain tranquility yet avoid creating an echo chamber? First thing I would ask here is what what's wrong with the echo chamber? Uh, how do I remain? In, I don't understand. 
I don't understand the question. Like, let me, let me rephrase the question here. Okay. How do I remain intentional? How do I intentionally surround myself with people in my life that will help me maintain tranquility and avoid an echo chamber? An so, echo chamber to me means giving advice that isn't being perceived or that isn't being taken in. So an echo chamber is surrounding yourself. Like let's say you are a conservative Republican, right? Okay. And all of your friends now are conservative Republicans. Okay. Oh, I see. You're now in an echo chamber. Okay, okay, okay. Because everyone shares your opinions and beliefs. Mm -hmm. Here's what I'll say about that. Mm. Your opinion, opinions and belief will only disrupt tranquility. And so I don't care what the opinions, your opinions and beliefs are. I don't care what my opinions and beliefs are. I don't have any beliefs that I hold on to anymore, although I still pick them up from time to time. Sure. And I find myself setting down those beliefs over and over and over. And so, yes, surrounding yourself with people who have similar beliefs as you sounds nice, but other people are always going to disrupt your tranquility to to some extent. Mm. And so if you actually are seeking tranquility, you're probably gonna be seeking fewer people in your life. It doesn't mean having no one in your life. It means if there are people who constantly disrupt your peace, what Ryan Mm. and I might call toxic relationships. Mm. Now, of course, Ryan, there's a difference between toxic relationships and person who has a different opinion or belief from you, right? Absolutely. You and I have different opinions and beliefs about certain things, opinions mm-hmm. on music, right? That doesn't, that doesn't disrupt my tranquility necessarily. Mm-hmm. What would disrupt my tranquility is if I tried to convince you that, no, 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 90s hip-hop is better than Audie's hip-hop or whatever. Right. Now, all of a sudden, I'm having an unnecessary argument. There's no truth in that. These are opinions. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I don't want to be in an echo chamber because I want to an- understand others' perspectives. Boom. And, and as an extrovert, I want to be surrounded by people, which tells me that the truth of the matter is mm-hmm. is that I really don't care about having that much tranquility in my life. And that that might be true, at least at the moment, right? Sure. And. And there could be a realization in the future where where you realize like, ah, yes, I'm an extrovert because I was addicted to chaos. Mm. I'm not saying that's the case here. I'm saying that that could be a potential realization. It could be. Uh, Well, I want to like understand the chaos. So I'm addicted to understanding the chaos. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so. so So, Well, it's funny because it just makes me think about how people drive themselves crazy who, like Jay said, like they make tranquility this destination and they drive themselves crazy with like, well, I just want to have a tranquil life. But it's like, do you though? Yeah. Do you want to have tranquility? Um, it can't be a destination. There's right. no tranquility in your future. It is always only now that we can experience mm. tranquility or peace. Yeah. And and there'll be a new now, a moment from now. Ooh, yeah. So, so you... Uh, uh, and I'm, I don't know. I don't know if this is right or not, but I feel like you can have both. You can have chaos. You could have the uh, the ability to try and understand the chaos. I don't think you'll ever truly understand it. But you can also have tranquility if you if 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 you want it. Yeah, and and you can. There are certain savants of living. I'm certainly not there who can experience tranquility in the chaos. In chaos, sure. 
right? And, and so there's someone in Times Square who is completely tranquil. You put me in the middle of Times Square right now, mm. and it is going to feel chaotic. But for me, it'll be less chaotic than other people who mm. are who are stimulated in a different way. You know, that it's a it's a very sort of caffeinated existence. Here's what I, when I asked that question early on: What is wrong with the echo chamber? Here's the thing: If you surround yourself only with people who speak the truth. Mm-hmm what would the problem with the echo chamber be? The echo chamber becomes a problem when we're talking about beliefs. Mm. And so, so yes, uh, the echo chamber, when we have only people around us who are the same point of view of us, we do become, we do become those uh, with whom we associate. Mm. And so associate wisely or, or not at all, perhaps, mm. is, uh, is what I'm looking at for myself. Yeah. Nima has a question for us. What advice would you give to someone who is a tech enthusiast and wants to be a minimalist? I don't have any advice, but here's the truth about technology with respect to minimalism. You can be a digital minimalist for sure. In fact, we have a friend who wrote a book called Digital Minimalism right? and talks about that. In fact, in our, our new book, uh, Love People Use Things, we talk about, there's a whole chapter in there about our relationship with creativity. Mm. And in there, we talk about our relationship to distractions and technology because those things often get in the way of our creativity. And so someone who is a tech enthusiast and wants to be a minimalist. Well, what is minimalism? Minimalism is using our resources intentionally. Mm. Well, can you use technology intentionally? In fact, if you're a tech enthusiast, isn't that the preferable way to use yeah. your technology mm-hmm. is to do it intentionally. And so one might even say that in order to be a digital minimalist, one of the paths is via the tech enthusiast, mm. the person who is truly enthusiastic. Because uh, if you are a, a true tech enthusiast, that means this is the thing that I can't not do, right? This is my deep desire. I have the constitution mm-hmm. of a tech enthusiast. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then if we're using those tools deliberately, the, the truth is we are a, a digital minimalist. Totally. Bruno writes, how can I balance tranquility and kids? You know, when I see this question, mm-hmm. the question I think Bruno should be asking is how can my kids and I experience tranquility together? Ooh. Like that is a much more powerful question than mm-hmm. how can I, how can I block the kids out yeah. and experience tranquility? That is, yeah. it's probably uh, I don't know. I think it's making tranquility a destination yes. when the question is, is like how, how can we experience tranquility together as a family? That's a, that's a deeper understanding. I feel like. And let me answer that question hmm. with another question. <laughs> How can I not disrupt my kids' tranquility? Ooh, yeah. Because really that's what we're doing. They already have it, right? And what you're saying is they're disrupting your tranquility? No, 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 no. The anxiety that is arising and then manifesting in our interactions with our children, at least this is the case in my household, whenever I'm feeling anxious or overwhelmed or disturbed, it's because that emotion arises and then I act upon it. So instead of that is 
how can I leave my kids alone as so as to not disrupt their tranquility? Mm. A- and man, if I'm not disrupting her tranquility, doesn't that give me a greater ability ability to experience that tranquility? Mm. Interesting. Yeah, because you know when kids get upset, I mean, obviously kids throw tantrums; they have these impulses they don't know how to deal with. Yeah. But to your point, there are oftentimes external things that are disrupting their tranquility. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, is yeah, is how can we help them be more, or how yeah, how can we help? How can we stop stop disrupting their tranquility? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so like it's. Uh, that how is not a how to, right? Because it's literally, it's like when I say letting go isn't something you do, it's something you stop doing. Right. And and, and maybe tranquility is the same and in, in many respects. Tranquility is not the place you arrive. It's where you already are. Mm. And we need to declutter our emotions, our angst, et cetera, mm. in order to... Uh, or attachment to those emotions in order to experience the tranquility that already exists. It's right there. <laughs> it's an undercurrent of tranquility. Mm. And we are uh, flailing around in the uh, the rapids that are you know, just above uh, that tranquility. Yeah. Emily has a question for us. I'm a teacher and I love what I do. However, it can be stressful at times. How do you go about reducing stress and promoting tranquility with work life? So this goes back to what we were talking about last week, Ryan, with work-life balance. How yeah, in work, a way, yeah. work-life balance is whenever we ask that question, it's always about work. Right. And so it's... When she says, I love what I do, what you're saying is there are aspects of what I do that I enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. But I, There's not, a cost. Right. And, yeah. and, and right now, some of that is manifesting in stress. Mm-hmm. And now, all of a sudden, it can be stressful. I'm glad she worded it that way. Not I'm stressed out, but it can be stressful. Yes, it can be. Mm-hmm. And, and it is always more stressful when I'm reacting to that stress wouldn't you agree yeah yeah and i I would also posit that like a river has its you know ebbs and flows and its boundaries Mm -hmm. as human beings we sometimes get to create some boundaries so Mm -hmm. maybe there's some boundaries that emily needs to set up to be able to handle those ebbs and flows a little easier it's not about just being able to flow it's not about having no stress. It's about having the appropriate amount of stress. I mean, even when I think about like, you know, branches or trees getting stronger, some trees don't experience windy conditions, mm-hmm. but then as you know, they'll get to a certain age and, you know, a windstorm will blow them over because they didn't have the stress. They didn't have that, uh, Resilience. Yeah, exactly. So I I personally think that there is a, oh man, I got to be careful with this. I want to say there's a healthy amount of stress, but when I say stress, I'm not talking about being stressed out. Yeah. I'm talking about there's a healthy amount of resistance. That's the word. There's a healthy amount of resistance that I think Emily should embrace. If you have too much resistance mm-hmm. and it is becoming stressful and you're too stressed out, 
then there's something's got to give. Boundaries need to be set up or um, or something else has to give. I don't know what that or is, but, but well, yeah. Well, you're reframing it as resilience. Mm-hmm. A- and, and what I like about that is because you could rephrase this question. I'm a teacher and I love what I do. However, it can be exciting at times. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, if she were to ask that question, you'd be like, well, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. What's the problem here? Right. She's overlifed. <laughs> well, right. Words. And so, <laughs> so the, the stress we associate as bad. And what you're saying is it's not good or bad. Mm-hmm. Stress is not bad. And by the way, you're, it might be a problem here, but guess what else is a problem? Hmm. Excitement. And so I'm a teacher. I love what I do. However, it can be exciteful, excitement. It can be exciting at times. Mm. If you were to say it that way, I would say it's the same question, mm. but we would never ask that question, would we? If we're experiencing excitement all the time, excitement is a type of stress. Yeah. And so maybe it is that you are excited. That's not good or bad either. You might prefer it to feeling stressed, but fundamentally they're the same thing. Mm. Just like pleasure and misery are fundamentally the same thing mm. as well. So how do you go about reducing stress? Maybe it's not about reducing stress. Maybe it's about understanding the stress you're experiencing, understanding from where it arises. And if we truly understand that stress, then it's probably not going to stress us out in the first place. I mean, these conversations are so, I, I love having these conversations because I don't have to have any answers. Yeah. Cause it's like, cause the thing is, is like with Emily, like, you know, I don't know, months ago I would have been like, I would have tried to have an answer. Here's option A, B, or C. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm always nervous about giving the wrong advice. Um, and I think what we're doing, hopefully, is helping people come up with A, B, or C themselves rather than us saying, well, here's A, here's B, here's C. Well, because it does depend on the person, right? Yeah. Because what stresses me out might excite you and, and vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. Especially with me and you because of the extroversion, introversion yeah. thing. Or just take the snowboarding. Right. You'd be terrified. Right. I've seen you snowboard. You yeah. were terrified. Yes, yeah. for sure. And, and so uh, <laughs> and, and so that was a, a type of stress that was an excitement for someone else. So mm. if, I, if you were to give an answer, I'm like, just snowboard and you'll be excited. Well, that'd be a bad answer for a large part of the populace because it would not be true. Mm. God love you for trying it out. <laughs> <laughs> you really did, man. For me, you tried it out. That was... How, how old were we? Were we like 25? Yeah, yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah. Wow. That was a lifetime ago. Yeah, no doubt. All right, patrons. Thank you so much for being here. Let's continue yeah. these conversations. We'll see you next time. Yeah, we'll see you. Love Thanks. people. Use things. The Minimalists. <laughs>